0: Welcome back to the DIRS show. First, some breaking news. The Supreme Court in a five to four decision just allowed stand um, uh, Title uh, 42, which authorizes um, uh, uh, immigration authorities to treat um, uh, applicants for asylum and other potential immigrants um, under a protocol that was designed to prevent the spread of of COVID and um, um, five justices allowed it to stand um, with argument scheduled now for February. We don't know how, how they'll decide it. The surprising vote was by uh, Justice Gorsuch, who generally can be counted on to go along with the six to three conservative majority in the Supreme Court. But Gorsuch went out of his way to essentially say, look, whatever the merits of this thing are, you can't keep uh, Title 42 in effect on the claim that there is a COVID emergency. Um, that's no longer an appropriate justification. Maybe there are other justifications, but COVID is no longer a justification. Of course, ironically, I read that as I was coughing and fleming from COVID myself. Um, I'm getting a little better, but uh, still, still have it, still test um, positively uh, for it. So I, I don't think the COVID uh, emergency or crisis is over, but It's certainly not in the pandemic proportions that it used to be. And and this is part and parcel of a bigger issue, and that is how much power should administrative agencies or even the executive, the president, have uh, over matters that ought to be legislative? Um, Emergency, sure. But um, when the emergency is over, Congress has to act. And so I think this decision, although it's a stopgap, it's only between now and and sometime February when the argument is heard, maybe March or April, when the case is decided, raises the more fundamental issue of uh, what can Congress do um, to control immigration effectively. We are a nation of immigrants, and uh, we want uh, immigrants to renew the lifeblood of this country, as many of our parents, grandparents, -grandparents, great-grandparents, and great-great-grandparents did over over time, but we cannot accept an open door policy uh, where people come in without regard to communicable diseases or their criminal record, etc. A balance has to be struck, and it should be struck by Congress. The problem is, starting in January, you're going to have a divided Congress. You're going to have the House under the control, um, obviously, of the Republicans, a narrow control, and the Senate under the control, even narrower, of, um, of the Democrats. So Ultimately, we're going to have to see a more definitive resolution to the immigrant problem. I haven't obviously had a chance to read everything on the um, SCOTUS case. I've I've read enough to be able to say what I've said. But uh, for a more definitive analysis, perhaps tomorrow or um, in the future, um, I'll have to uh, read the opinions uh, more carefully. Maybe we'll do it in the in the run up to the. February uh, arguments, but this is not the last you've heard about the immigration crisis at the border in the United States. Okay, that's not what I plan to talk about today. What I plan to talk about today is Congressman-elect George uh, Santos, um, uh, the first openly gay New York uh, congressman. Uh, People applauded his um, election as an openly gay member of, of Congress. Republicans applauded his election as helping to maintain um, uh, narrow control or regain narrow control of the House of Representatives. But (laughs) now it turns out that um, uh, Congressman-elect Santos wasn't exactly a paragon of honesty during his uh, campaign, um, The New York Times and other magazines and newspapers and media have documented misstatement after misstatement that he um, made. Um, Graduated college. Apparently, no, he never graduated college. He worked for Goldman Sachs. No, he didn't quite work for Goldman Sachs. He worked for Citigroup. No, he may have um, worked for a company that had some connections to um, Citigroup. Um, He hid the fact, or at least didn't disclose the fact, that he had a year-long marriage. That's really not an issue. A person can be openly gay and run as an openly gay candidate, even with um, heterosexual and marital experiences. So I don't hold that against him. And he was under no obligation to disclose his marital status. Um, He apparently did um, fail to disclose a serious crime. He said, I'm not a criminal. I'm not here or in Brazil or in any jurisdiction of the world. Absolutely not. That did not happen. But there seems to be evidence that when he was a young man, he was caught writing checks with a stolen uh, a checkbook. He was identified with his full name and date of birth, as well as by the names of his mother and uh, a father. So uh, there seems to be a real issue of uh, credibility here. I guess my favorite or maybe least favorite, and it's probably not something we should um, joke or even smile about, is he acclaimed uh, Jewish heritage. Um, um, He uh, even went so far as to claim that his grandparents escaped the Holocaust and moved to Brazil from Europe. Um, And there's apparently some real doubts about that, about his Jewish ancestry. And so this is my favorite quote. Uh, I never claimed to be Jewish, he said. I never claimed to be Jewish. I am Catholic because I learned my maternal grandmother's family had a Jewish background. I said I was Jew-ish, not Jewish, Jew-ish. Well, okay, okay. We'll, 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 we'll give you that if that's true, if your family, in fact, has some Jewish, Sephardic, uh, Brazilian uh, background. But if, in fact, they never set foot in Europe in the Ukraine, as you said. They did, if in fact they had no connection whatsoever to the Holocaust. Uh, that's a completely different issue. That doesn't make you Jewish or Jew-ish. It makes you lie-ish, um, uh, untruth-ish. Um, we might not even want to include the ish part of it. And so the question arises: What can be done about it? Obviously. Democratic congressmen are now uh, starting a campaign not to seat him. Well, that that really can't be done. The Constitution has certain requirements for Congress. You have to be 25 years old. You have to live in the state. Um, and he meets those requirements, even though he doesn't any longer live in the district and from which he ran. That's not a requirement under the Constitution. So I doubt that there is going to be any power by by Congress not to seat him, even if there were the will or the inclination to do it. If it went along a party vote, now obviously, it would not succeed in unseating him. And I don't think that's going to be the route that's taken. The question really is: once the Speaker of the House is selected, it's McCarthy or whoever else it might be, should that person, person who has the power to do a great deal, assign? Uh, Congressman elect to uh, plum committees. Uh, should he be punished um, by not being put on important uh, uh, committees? Should the case be referred to the ethics committee? If some of the mistruths were about relevant financial information, then maybe the ethics committee does have jurisdiction. The speaker has enormous power to make such. Uh, referrals or do the opposite. Look, look at what Nancy Pelosi didn't do or did do uh, with Elon O'Mara, who is a blatant liar and bigot. And uh, she was awarded for her bigotry and lying. She basically said all congressmen vote for Israel only because they're bribed, only because of the Benjamins, baby. They're paid off um, without recognizing the vast majority of members of Congress, as all Americans are generally um uh, pro-israel but not only was Ilana amer not punished uh, not only did um the speaker of the house pose with her smilingly in the cover of rolling stone magazine but she was given the the plum assignment uh, as a member of the, the house foreign relations committee um even though she's a bigot particularly in foreign relations and and on the middle east so um Whatever the rules are, they have to be applied uh, fairly and equally. They can't be applied in a partisan uh, manner. What would be ideal is if Democrats and Republicans could uh, get together and agree on a kind of ethics code for truth-telling and lying that would uh, punish uh, people who uh, told lies in their effort to get elected. And this, this doesn't apply, obviously, not only to uh, Republicans or only to conservatives. Um, I like uh, Senator um, uh, Blumenthal. Um, he's been a very, very good senator uh, from uh, Connecticut, Richard Blumenthal. I know him. I like him very much. But there is absolutely no doubt that he lied. There's really no softer word for it about his uh, war record. Um, uh, he basically said on numerous occasions before he was caught that he had served in Vietnam. Now, he did serve with distinction in the United States Marines, but (laughs) he had a desk job in the United States. He didn't serve in in Vietnam. And yet um, uh, he was quoted as saying, when we returned from Vietnam, I remember the taunts, the verbal and even physical abuse we encountered. No, no, no. But Richard, you don't remember that because it didn't happen. Um, and apparently he said uh, over and over again that um, he uh, served in, in in Vietnam. Now, President Trump embellished on that when he went against um, Senator Blumenthal. Um, he accused him of saying he was a war hero in, uh, in Vietnam. he never he never said that, but uh, he had to admit, quote, I never had to go to Vietnam, but I wore the uniform and proudly serving the United States military gave me a perspective as well. Even the reserves, although I did not serve in Vietnam, I have seen firsthand the effects of military action. So uh, that's truthful. I'm sure he did see the effects. I think many of us saw the effects of military action in Vietnam. We saw the trauma, we saw the PTSD, we saw the ways in which uh, great American heroes who did serve in Vietnam were, were treated uh, miserably by Americans um, back home. And so uh, Senator Blumenthal accurately did describe from the vantage point of serving his country in the United States, what went on in Vietnam, but he did misstate his own involvement and he did campaign and uh, win several elections. By the way, he won these elections even after his misstatements were exposed, so obviously um, uh, they were not uh, central to his electoral success. I have no idea whether they were central to Santos's electoral success or not. Um, but uh, you know, could we have a statute that required members of Congress to tell the truth? Uh, I, I don't. I don't think so. Um, there uh, would be very few members of, of Congress still sitting if it were a preclusion from Congress to have told something other than the truth about about something. Um, um, Article one of the Constitution does provide that members of the Senate, members of the House shall be immune from uh, being questioned or certainly being sued or certainly being prosecuted for what they say on the floor of the Senate, on the floor of the House, or on the way to or from the Senate and House, which often includes election campaigns. So they have been given special privileges. Does that mean they're above the law, the way they often claim that uh, presidents are above the law? No, it doesn't mean they're above the law. It means that this is the law. It's probably not a particularly uh, beneficial law to give so broad immunity to members of, of Congress, but that's what the Article one of the Constitution provides. And so we have to live by the Constitution. And that means that congressmen and senators can get away with lying. Uh, (laughs) There was a case many years ago where I think it was the Senator from South Carolina didn't like something the Senator from Massachusetts said in the run-up to the Civil War. And he took his cane, hit him over the head and almost killed him and made him um, a disabled person for the rest of his life. And there were no consequences because it happened on the uh, floor of the Senate. I represented Senator Mike Gravel, who was the United States Senator from Alaska, who read into the congressional record, the Pentagon Papers. And we claimed successfully, all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, that uh, Senator Gravel could not be prosecuted, um, could not be investigated for reading the classified uh, Pentagon Papers uh, on the floor of the Senate. those are the prices one pay for, for, for a democracy. A judicial immunity is rampant too. Judges get away with murder. They say things from the bench. There was a case many years ago where a judge colluded with the father of a white uh, young girl from um, um, uh, a southern state who was uh, going out with a guy and the father was afraid that she'd become pregnant. So the father colluded with the judge and the judge issued an order um, um, telling the young girl that she had to be operated on for, I think it was appendicitis, when in fact the judge ordered that she become sterile, uh, that she not be permitted um, by biology to have uh, babies. And when she got married a few years later to a nice guy and tried to have babies, she realized for the first time that her tubes had been tied. And uh, she and her husband sued the judge and the Supreme Court said, no, the judge had absolute immunity, even though what he did was criminal. I mean, just outrageous, uh, deserving of the worst uh, condemnation and rebuke. But because he was a judge and was wearing a robe, he could do what he wanted and say what he wanted and engage in the kind of conduct that he engaged in. It's uh, one of the most outrageous decisions ever rendered by the United States. And we've seen others where prosecutors have been uh, given immunity from uh, lying, planting evidence, sending people to death row on the basis of manufactured evidence. But because they're prosecutors, uh, they can't be held accountable, except perhaps through the Bar Association, but held accountable criminally or civilly for um, uh, horrible, horrible misconduct. But, you know, we live in a world where the Constitution uh, permits things to happen that in the short run are not are not particularly good for society, but in the long run uh, may be necessary for uh, us to continue our constitutional uh, way of life. So I'd be interested in your views. What do you think would have happened to a uh, congressman elect uh, uh, um, Santos? What do you think should have happened to some of the other uh, members of Congress who, who, who lied about many, many things ranging from war records to um, um, personal items uh, and personal matters. Um, should there be a statute? Should there be some kind of accountability? Or is the only accountability at the polls? And do people really care enough about uh, preventing lies to vote against candidates who um, have uh, achieved office through misstatements. Um, you know, unfortunately we live in a world where lying is is, is rampant. And uh, I know I, <laughs> I've been victimized by uh, lies over the years, uh, quite seriously. And sometimes there are legal remedies, sometimes uh, there are not. So write to me uh, what you think of um congressman-elect george santos whether you think he's gone too far whether there is anything is going too far whether there should be limits legal limits to the lies uh, a congressman or a candidate for congress um, can tell Uh, what about talk show hosts what about podcast hosts Um, i try my darndest to uh, be straight um, and, and always tell the truth and, and, and be nuanced. Um, but what about uh, podcast hosts who don't? Um, we know that there have been some who have been held liable for multi, 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 multi-million dollar judgments about making up uh, lies with victims. Um, you know, the First Amendment does permit defamation. It's limited um, when it's a public figure. It has to be accompanied by malice, which means reckless disregard for the truth. But if you're a member of Congress, even that won't get you in front of a court. Um, But if you're a congressman-elect and you campaigned um, um, outside of Congress, uh, you could be held responsible. But it has to be defamatory, and lies themselves are not defamatory. If you just say you worked for companies you didn't work for, or you served in the military abroad when you didn't, or you went to college when you didn't. Those are not defamatory statements. Those are simple uh, misstatements. And uh, there are really no consequences for that outside of um, uh, ethics committee. So I'm really interested in hearing your views on <clears throat> honesty in government and um, what can be done about dishonesty in government. All right, let's turn to letters, lots and lots of letters over the past um uh, a couple of days about some very controversial subjects that we discussed. Okay, uh, we talked about religion. It's always going to be one that gets a lot of controversy. We talked about whether or not Great Britain was a, um, had an established church and whether having an established church is in violation of basic uh, civil liberties and equality. And, of course, it always comes back to Israel. So here's one. Jews in Israel have been trying to drive all Christians from Bethlehem for many years. Dershowitz strong, wrongly tries to paint Israel as some equality country. What a laugh. Well, let's get the facts straight. Jews, the Jews of Israel love the fact that there were Christians in Bethlehem. Um, Christian Bethlehem was a major um, tourist attraction and major uh, way of bringing Christians Um, to Israel, and uh, Israel did everything in its power to um, um, increase the number of Christians uh, who lived in Bethlehem. But what happened is uh, after the Palestinians obtained control of Bethlehem, and remember under the 1947 UN resolution, Bethlehem was supposed to be an international city. It was part of the whole area of Jerusalem, Bethlehem, which was supposed to be internationalized, and it wasn't. Um, And when the Arabs took control of Bethlehem, it was they, not the Jews, who threw out the Christians. Uh, They hated the fact that they were non-Muslims, so close to the holy city, even though Bethlehem was obviously a city far more important to Christians than it was uh, to uh, Muslims. But uh, the effect that this letter writes about is true, the number of uh, Christians— Uh, who today live in uh, Bethlehem, is a fraction of what it used to be, but it has nothing to do with the Israeli government or the Jews. If you look at the data, it's very clear. It's from the time the Palestinian Authority took over Bethlehem. That's when the Christians of Bethlehem were chased out. Same thing happened in Lebanon. Lebanon was a country divided between Christian Arabs and Muslim Arabs. And once the Muslim Arabs uh, took over, uh, Lebanon has many, many, many fewer Christian Arabs today. Um, every place where Muslims have taken control, the first victims tend to be Christian Arabs. And so uh, the letter is just totally categorically wrong. Check it out. Check out the data. There's, there's no dispute about this. The data is just as clear as could be. The chronology is clear. The data is clear. So check it out and you'll see it's true. Okay, this is a good one. I first read this when I was coughing and and wheezing. You do not have COVID. There is no such virus. It's snake venom toxin. And Dr. Artis' website for treatment, get nicotine gum now. No, no, I have COVID. I've tested positive for COVID as recently as three hours ago. I wish I didn't have. COVID. I tried so hard to stop myself from getting COVID. I wore masks everywhere I went. I was a pain in the neck. I told people to put on masks. I didn't eat inside of restaurants. I wore a mask the whole trip when I came back from Israel even when I was sleeping. Uh, But I got it anyway, and so did my wife, obviously, at the same time. We're not sure when or where, but We know we have COVID, and COVID deniers should be ashamed of themselves. Um, They are helping to perpetuate uh, myths and lies about a real illness and a real disease. Look, you can argue about vaccines. You can argue about treatments. You can argue about a range uh, of things, but you can't argue about the existence of a worldwide pandemic, which has taken too many, too many lives. And uh, hopefully it's uh, on the wane. Uh, hopefully it's less deadly. Hopefully when people get their fifth vaccine, the way I've gotten and my wife has gotten our fifth vaccine, the effects are, are, are less great, but there are rebounds as well. And so uh, we're hoping. Uh, today I took my first walk uh, with my wife. We walked around the block. We wore masks, even outdoors to prevent anybody else from getting them. We didn't get close to anybody, but we at least breathed in some fresh air for the first time in six or seven days. So we we hope we're on the mend, but we do have COVID. Okay. Professor, a suit was filed uh, by Alaska uh, by a disgruntled citizen seeking to keep State Representative David Eastman from taking office. He was elected by a wide margin. The suit alleged that Eastman was disqualified from taking office because he was a member of the Oath Keepers and therefore was in violation of the loyalty clause of the Alaska Constitution. The judge threw out the lawsuit. Do you agree with the judge's decision? Yes, I do. I don't know the facts of the case, particularly. But when you're elected to office, all you have to do is satisfy the qualifications for office. The rest is up to the public. I wouldn't vote for somebody who was an Oath Keeper. Um, I would vote against them, um, depending, of course. Who they were running against, but that would be my inclination. But I don't think that you uh, go to court to stop somebody from running because they were a member of an organization or a group that you thoroughly disapprove of or disagree with. Um, There are those who are saying that uh, Oath Keepers violate the 14th Amendment to the Constitution because they've engaged in insurrection. That just isn't the case. The 14th Amendment of the Constitution was designed to apply to people who fought in the civil war are not people who engage in protests in the year 2022 so from everything i've read i think the judge was probably right in his decision thanks for the great historical insights on aspects of our nation's history the history of law is fascinating as always many thanks for all the excellent content you provide i deeply respect your complete devotion to the defense of civil liberties and the constitution look I try my best and I try very hard to prevent present a uh, balance and to give a little historical uh, perspective. Um, you know, I'm a history buff. I collect historical documents and historical books and letters, and I, I get great joy out of uh, sharing them um, with you. And I know a lot of you get joy out of having them shared because I get letters from you saying that, please do. Uh, more of that, and whenever the occasion arises, I will go to my library and read from seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth century documents, dusty and uh, and and uh, sometimes uh, hard to read, but um, there they are. They are the original uh, sources. Um, I love uh, old sources, whether they be the Bible um, or whether they be the Constitution or whether they be um, documents that precede uh, the Constitution or precede the Bible. I own artifacts that are older than the, than the Bible, and um, I will continue to show them to you on a regular basis. Uh, thank you for fighting against anti-Catholic discrimination at Harvard. Right now, it seems Harvard is still very intolerant, and now it seems to be broadly anti-religious, again, at least against the more conservative and traditional religions. like I agree with you. Harvard has a horrible history of bigotry and it has to reckon uh, with that history of bigotry. And if it's gonna take down uh, the names of bigots who uh, were part of the anti-black history of Harvard and Yale and Princeton, uh, Princeton's even more recent um, because of um, uh, the president of Princeton, Woodrow Wilson, who was a racist, Um, but if you're going to do that, you also have to take into account, in proportion, to be sure, the anti-Catholic and anti-Jewish bigotry uh, that was so overt and so pronounced um, in the early part of the the 20th century. The anti-Catholic bigotry lasted even longer. It was interesting. It it wasn't anti-Catholic as much as it was Anti-Irish Catholic and anti-Italian Catholic. If you were a a British Catholic uh, who didn't have a name um, that was identifiably Irish or identifiably Italian, um, there probably wasn't a lot of bigotry or bias. Certainly, uh, it wasn't well known. And there, you know, there have been uh, Catholic um, priests in positions of authority uh, religiously in schools like Yale and Harvard. But the anti-Italian, anti-Irish Catholic bias at both of those universities was pronounced even through the 1960s and probably into the 1970s. And I'm proud of the small role that I played in exposing it and fighting against um, uh, bigotry. Um, My first big case was on behalf of an Italian-American named John Lucido, who was turned down from a partnership um, in a major law firm, Cravat, Swain & Moore, Why Hide the Fact? And um, uh, I was urged by uh, Jewish lawyers not to rock the boat because these firms were doing better for Jews than they had in the past. And I said, no, uh, bigotry against anyone is bigotry against everyone. And we fought and we won um, a legal ruling that uh, law firms could not refuse to promote uh, Italian Catholics or Irish Catholics or people of any other ethnicity to partnership based on their religion or ethnic identification. All right. See you tomorrow.